Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Well, hello, Yvonne. Now, there is something missing. Something missing? No tree, no live, no nothing live, just a gray wall. Christmas is over. So (laughs) I'm also, my desk is elevated. I'm doing the standing desk thing. So you can't see any of the stuff behind me. But also I went to the grocery this week and the flowers were all ugly. So I don't have any flowers this week. (laughs) They They were just ugly. It's like they didn't have any hamburger and the flowers were ugly. That's the story of my life. So wow. no flowers. All the effects of COVID. Ugly flowers and ham and no hamburger meat. Yep, exactly. So Tom, I see you're with us and the globe is in its correct position. And you looks like you have a living flower next to you or a living yeah. plant. Since we've talked about my plant a few times, it's not dead. I think I think it's uh we got a change going on here. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> And Nick Russo joins us today. So Nick is just backed up by a bunch of foam. That's all we can see of Nick is he's just foamed. Yeah, there's a little kind of semicircle I encapsulate myself (laughs) in it for recordings. And this is where I kind of do my day job, my recording job. Everything is like this little one standing area of my house. So it works okay. Encapsulated Nick. Yeah. He's ready to be shipped. It's a tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) So Yvonne, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so uh, Nick and I were talking. I was reading through the DevOps handbook again, I don't know, sometime a few months ago when we were chatting about the tools that we use to manage not just work projects, but life and like everything that Nick does. He he has a system and a plan that he uses, and I thought it would be helpful to folks to kind of talk through some of the, the tools that he uses and the things that he does um, and how he gets so much done. We have... Uh, I know uh, Joe Onasik and I have teased him that there is a a universal metric of content creation um, and and the absolute maximum is one Russo. So uh, we'd love to hear from Nick about how he gets so much done. Sure. So I think a lot of it, I mean, there's, you know, aside from the the tropes of you got to work hard and wake up early and all that, let's just wipe that to the side. That's kind of necessary. But if we talk more about the tools and the processes and the the things that go into what I have to think about and how I plan things out, it's it's a mix of having a vision and being able to execute it and using technology to help with that process. And I know that sounds kind of vague, but just to give a few examples is um, something I did a lot over Christmas break. And the reason I'm starting with this is because it's so recent, like it, it just happened, is I added a bunch of new content to uh, one of my free books on evolving technologies that I started writing years ago. And I recently, a few, about two years ago, I transformed it from being just a traditional like Word document. I turned it into a code project. Um, I made a video to talk about how the code project worked in detail. I basically turned it into a, almost like a DevOps pipeline in a sense where I would go and make changes to the manuscript. I would do my Git push operation. And then from there, there would be a, a series of some testing that would happen. The book would be compiled. It's written in LaTeX, which is a, a compiled language. So we would compile the book. We would get artifacts. Those artifacts would get automatically uploaded to an AWS S3 bucket. And from there, the book would be published on my website. So I, I type Git push and I walk away. Um, I get email notifications if there's anything wrong. And by automating those steps, 
And it's not, you know, just to take a step back, this isn't a new idea. Um, I think in the context of book publishing, you don't see this quite as much, but in the context of deploying apps to production or doing network automation, this is something that's been talked about time and time again. But what I like to do is within my personal work and my own research and sometimes related to my personal business, I look for these approach, these, I don't want to call it shortcuts because there's a lot of time and, and sometimes capital required up front to do these things. But I look for ways that I can spend more time doing the hard work that requires my thinking and my focus and less time dealing with copying files, logging into AWS, opening up my Google Authenticator app for two-factor authentication. Like that really bugs me. I get so sick of doing that. So I always look for ways that I don't have to do that anymore. And I automate those things out of my life. Uh, and then if you're lucky, I'll go and make a YouTube about it, which is nice for me because I half the time I forget what I did and I can go watch my own video. But those just a quick example of how I've been able to use these things in my personal life. And I don't know if anyone else has some, some anecdotes they'd like to share too. So it's interesting because that's very medic, what I would consider medica-native, which by the way, is like a thing that I do as well. I watch what I'm doing and then I try to figure out how to do it faster, right? I don't just say, oh, I've got to do this a thousand times. I actually sit down and look at the process I use to do something. And I think, am I going to do this more than once? And if I'm going to do it more than once, I try to find a tool or a way to make it where I do it much more faster and much more efficiently in the future. I think this is, uh, by the way, this goes back to coding a little bit too, by the way. Um, I was talking to Alistair Woodman one day, and he was talking about potential coders to bring on to his company to work on FR routing. And one of the things he said he always looks for is, rather than someone who solves problems, he looks for somebody who builds tools to solve their problems, uh, rather than just a problem solver. He's always looking for somebody who shows an experience and shows the usual thing that they do is they take a problem and they turn it into a tool. I think that's, uh, that's all very good. I think that's excellent stuff. So Nick, I was going to ask what, uh, it sounds like you've got a lot of things automated in your, in your personal workflows. Uh, if you had to take like a, a typical day's work of yours and you had to throw out all of the automation, uh, how long, what, what, what's the, what's the multiplier, I guess, like how much work would it turn into if you had to turn off all of your automation today? Yeah, I think, you know, as it relates to things like the book publishing example, you know, the act of you know, compiling the book and uploading it to an S3 bucket, that's only, if I'm being honest, maybe 10 minutes of work. Um, it's not like I say, you know, the, the time it takes to like learn the technology and write the book is orders of magnitude more difficult than the final step of just putting it on a website. But for me, it's the investment of the, the, the effort, even though it's not necessarily an effort savings and a big multiplier, you know, for example, when we talk about automating pipelines in, you know, for like corporate apps or network automation, you know, if you need to update VLANs on a thousand switches, that's like, if you had to do it manually, it's like linear scale, you know, every new switch is an amount of time more, but with automation, it's almost like a flat line because as you add more switches, you just do more concurrency, more or less, you know, there, obviously there's some limits there, but um, I don't get anywhere near those kinds of savings. But for me, it's just a matter of, I can finish doing something difficult, like writing a chapter of, of a book I can save the file, I can get push, and I can walk away. And then, and then I can start my break and I can go and eat dinner or play chess or do a workout and not have to think about that book again until I touch it. And then as soon as I get back, I'm writing the book again. So the only time I interface with the book is when I'm actually doing what I consider to be value-added work. So it's not so much that I saved a lot of time, 
but I turned my value add time from 90% to 99%. Um, so that improvement allows me to focus on why am I writing this book in the first place? All the administrative meta stuff that surrounds the existence of the book, I don't want to have to think about that. Uh, another example that fits into that same narrative is building content creation. So as you know, I do a lot of work on Pluralsight. And what makes Pluralsight kind of interesting is that their clips are very short. They're typically two to six minutes. And when you have lots of short clips, that means you have lots of files. And when you have lots of files, you have lots of audio samples. And those individual samples, what I do is I take my audio samples. Um, they're broken into different files for each clip. I would upload them to a, a service called Alphonic. Basically, it's a service that takes your input file and does some smoothing, some leveling, some volume control. Uh, noise cancellation is optional. You know, just some basic cleanup. You know, make these files pretty and then download them again. Now, you can do that through the web interface and it's pretty good and it's not that bad. But if you accidentally uh, forget to rename your files, because they, you know, they come in with the same names they come out as, so it's easy to get mixed up. Uh, sometimes I've submitted, and I haven't, I, unfortunately I caught myself, but I've almost submitted a mixed bag where some clips had the right files and some clips didn't. So the volume was different, right? Imagine watching a video series and every other clip has a different volume. It's, it's annoying, it's unprofessional. Uh, so I automated that process too. They had a REST API. I said, let me figure out how to do this. I invested probably a, a whole Saturday's worth to figure it out. And each time I do a course, it, you know, out of the hundred hours I pour into a course, this only saves me maybe an hour or two. So that, you know, because clicking on a GUI and uploading files isn't that hard. But again, think about the book. When I'm done recording or I'm done doing something difficult, editing content, recording it, producing it, I want to save the files, run script, walk away and go play chess or drink some water, right? I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, now I have to spend 20 more minutes doing the drag and drop for the rest of this module. Uh, so that allows me to continue working, even when I take my break, and I come back. Uh, it takes about one or two minutes per file. So if I have five files, I come back in five or 10 minutes and it's done. And I'm ready to get back to work and I don't have to think about it. For me, there's a big mental advantage there. Even though that advantage doesn't really materialize itself in the physical world, you know, because again, the time isn't really being saved at some grand scale. But for me, mentally, it allows me to immediately disengage from value-added work, go take my break, because that's important, come back and go right back into it without like, okay, let me get my phone and my 2FA and I got to log into the web interface and I have to click through the ads. You know, I don't, like that just puts me in a bad mood. I have, I have very, very low tolerance for that kind of stuff. I tend to be very high intensity in the work that I do. And I want to, I want my intensity to be a hundred or zero, if that makes sense. Either I'm doing it or I'm not doing it. I don't like to be like, oh, I have to go through this administrative stuff. So I always look for opportunities to not be in a position where I'm not able to do the best value-added work. Well, and there's a benefit buried in that description that you just went through that we don't often first think about. We're always thinking about automation and time savings. But the other huge benefit of automation is consistency and reliability. So when you create these workflows, you can ensure that every time it's done exactly the same way. You know, every time that you publish your book, it's going to be done and it's going to be done accurately and it's going to look the same. There's not going to be some weird interface change in a GUI that you're going to have to figure out, oh, where did they move this checkbox to this time? Or if it's something that you only do once every six weeks or something, you're going to forget and have to go back to your notes and your documents and refigure it all out again. So there's there's not just a um, 
a time savings component, but there's a quality component as well that um, can be equally or or more important depending on the thing that you're automating. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and I said this, I was on a, a podcast with some, some Marine officers a few weeks ago, and I think I summarized it as it's not always a matter of scale, but it is a matter of certainty. Like you said, getting the getting a consistent result on a regular basis. And that result is either going to be 100% correct or wrong, but it's going to be consistent and you can make the corrections and, and it's a repeatable process. And you're absolutely right. That plays into, again, there's a time, there's even a time dimension from that, the cost of poor quality, more time for we, we, uh, rework might even cost you money depending on the work that you're doing. And again, you, you hit on another thing that bugs me a lot is every time I log into AWS every six months, oh, we have a new interface. I was like, why? I mean, like, I don't care that much. You're making me use the API more and more, which I guess is good. Like maybe they're forcing me, to, maybe, they're, maybe it's a psychological thing, but it's working. Whatever they're trying to do, it's pushing me away from their, from their console. But you're absolutely right. That's a, another big driver. I think that there's like there are tasks that um, humans are good at and there are tasks that machines are good at and that there, there's some mutual exclusivity there. Like if a machine's good at it in general, we're not that good at it. Like super repetitive things. We make errors. We're just, we just don't do humans don't do quality work in repeatable tasks. Right. And so basically if you say, Oh, well, I just want to click through the webpage. What you're saying is I'm going to use this, uh, this one, one CPU core brain of mine to do unimportant things. And then, and then I'll do important things later. What I think what you're saying is I, I don't want to do, I don't want my one CPU core supercomputer here doing stupid stuff. I want it to do like things that are, that only it can do. And then I'll let the computers do the rest. I, I think there's something really elegant about that. Yeah. And, and it's a, you know, that's a really good way of putting it. A lot of people on this call have done creative work before in writing. I know Yvonne's getting her blog up and running again. Russ is, you know, Dr. White has written like 18 <laughs> books at this point, you know, so there's a lot, um, a lot of us are creative people and that's hard. You know, if you've ever, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about a book, like thinking is hard. It's some of the hardest work you can do. It's exhausting. It's, 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 it's the kind of work that, you know, like you said, Tom, machines can't do well. And when humans do it, it's very exhausting. And when I'm done with it, it's like, I don't want to have to go from being creative and doing something great to doing something where it's likely that I'm going to make a mistake. That's just going to make me upset. And that's going to damage my ability to be creative two hours from now. Um, again, even, even though I can be very productive, um, I'm also the kind of guy who gets frustrated easily. I rage quit a lot. Sometimes I go on Twitter and I rant about it, uh, but, but I'm also pretty tenacious. I'll usually come back once I cool off. So it's kind of like, you know, a race car with, with racing slick wheels driving on ice. That's kind of like me. I can go really fast, but it's hard for me to, hard for me to react when things go wrong. So when, when I expect something to go wrong, I will try to automate it away so that the only work I do is creative work. I'm also going to say you micro rage quit because <laughs> it true. is it is undetectable by anybody else in the universe. So <laughs> Nick micro rage quits, but he doesn't do it in any kind of wholesale way that impacts what we see externally. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot. There's a lot of micro. I mean, just, you know, this. Yes. A few days ago, I, I went on Twitter and I was trying to do something. Uh, I was trying to set up some protocol that I could barely get it to work after a whole day. And I was like, I'm done with it. And then this morning I was up at 4am, like, let's go. I'm getting it today. And of course I didn't. And I quit again, but I'm good. But it's not, I'm not done though. Um, I'm going to, I'm not going to let it go. It's, it's totally insignificant, but I'm, I'm a very stubborn person and uh, I'm a firm believer and I don't have any proof of this. This is just complete 
Nick Russo, you know, Scientology here. Um, but the more you quit, the more, the easier it is to quit more, if that makes sense. You get good at quitting. You get good at losing. It's a, it's a habit. So yeah. I only want to, I only want to give up things that I really don't think I can do. And that giving up is actually the better answer. Uh, giving up for convenience sake, that starts to become a pattern. And I've seen myself in the past go down that road and I know it's an, uh, it's a bad place to be. So very against giving up. If, if you think it's a good idea, you have to stick with it. And if that means changing your approach or adding or removing automation or spending more time on the creative process or outsourcing other things, you know, like Russ was talking about people who help him with this podcast behind the scenes, he's determined that that's a net add for his effort. And it makes sense for him to do that. But I don't think, you know, and Russ, you tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think you would just quit the podcast over, you know, a minor quibble with those publishers or a minor issue with audio. You know, we're more tenacious than that. We're more dedicated than that. Yeah, it's important. So there's so there's a couple of things there. The first is what you're talking about there, Nick, is called is is part of what would be considered the Aristotelian virtue ethic. I'm going to give you the philosophical name, so you can go look it up. <laughs> I, I, I will look it he's, up. I, I need you to spell it for me, but that, I will. <laughs> he's using that philosophy PhD. You're <laughs> quite educating us. Oh, they're doing it now. They're getting them in there anyway. Yes. So Aristotle has this theory that the more you say, the more you practice good moral decision-making and the more you practice beating your head against something, the stronger person you'll become. And it's called the virtue ethic. You build ethics by virtue of practicing being ethical. And I think that's very much what you're talking about here in some sense that, you know, you you practice it not quitting. Um, As far as the background goes, yeah, I mean, I would never quit doing the hedge because I got frustrated at the editing process. Instead, it just got to the point that I was spending eight to 10 hours a month doing editing. And I thought for X amount of money, I can just have somebody else do it. And by the way, as an author, I make X more money. And so I can write those off as a business expense. And so, yeah, it's money out of pocket. I don't make any money on the hedge because there's no advertising or anything, but you know what? It's just not worth the frustration of sitting here and trying to figure it out. Just let somebody else do the editing. Um, Now, you know, I do that an awful lot because I publish the Pearson rather than publishing myself. So I let somebody else do my editing. (laughs) And like, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, it's it's a choice that you make. I think- it's just outsourcing. Right, the whole theme of this conversation is to figure out what makes sense and to think about how you do your work. And what you can do to make yeah. it to make it more efficient in the net for you yeah. and for a lot of people, that's trading time for money, and that's a valuable and valid trade. You just you just should know the trade you're making. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think a lot of it goes back to the first the first thing I talked about, which is that it comes down to choosing to use tools rather than doing it all the time. However, that tool looks. Now, Nick is an automation expert. And so Nick uses the tool he has at hand, which is cool to go automate the stuff that he's doing. Um, you know, just depends. I'm sitting here making a list of things I can automate, by the way, Nick. <laughs> uh, another yeah. topic. Oh, did you have something else? No, no, no. I was just going to agree and, and tell him that that's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> can I automate making the list of things that I should automate? Yeah. 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 Uh, here, here, more, more and more meta as we go. No, I've got a kid who's getting ready to make a big life transition. And, and she's like, it just takes so much time to make a list. I'm like, honey, 
make your list. Like there's no more valuable time that you can spend than making your list. Yeah, but that'll take time. Trust me, like make a list. Like that's where that's where we are in her stage of development, right? Is like just make a list. But uh, you know, there there are all kinds of tools that we can use um, to improve how we work. And one of the things I also wanted to touch on that I know Nick does is how he has a personal Kanban board that he uses to manage the tasks that he wants to do, that he has to do, that he's currently working on and the things that are completed. Um, and it's it's very, you know, it's right out of the DevOps handbook. But Nick, do you want to unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, I'm actually opening it right now, just so I can have it, just so I can talk a little bit about it. I mean, I won't say exactly what's on it because there's a lot here, but yeah, so I started, you know, it's interesting because about three years ago, uh, when I started introducing automation at one of my customers, and, you know, I've talked about this before in my automation for bureaucracies YouTube video that I talked about in Las Vegas a couple of years back, there was a lot of resistance initially. Uh, and that resistance came from the more senior people in the organization. But what I didn't realize, and this is something that was deeply satisfying to me, is that the junior people in the organization were pretty excited about it. And one of them, she had the initiative to look up like what's a, you know, cause she was in the operations part of the group and I was giving them these tools to do their job, but they still needed to track the, the flow of work. So she went out and she started using Kanban within the organization without me really even talking a whole lot about it. And I thought that was brilliant. Uh, and she used uh, kanbantool.com. Now there's a million providers. I don't endorse any specific one. I just picked this one because they give me two Kanban boards for free forever. And that's all I need. One for me and one for my house. Uh, and I use it to track, you know, my personal work, you know, I divide work between revenue producing stuff versus community stuff, administrative tasks, like dealing with banks and investment firms and other things like that. I also even put in, you know, I'm a full-time Cisco employee. If I have a big Cisco project that has applicability outside of my job, I'll even make cards for those things here because, you know, if my job says, hey, you need to learn technology X to solve problems A, B, and C for this customer. But in my mind, if I know that technology X can also solve problems D and E and W or whatever, I'll make a note of that so I can dig a little deeper and extract some extra value from my own knowledge. So, so how would you compare a Kanban board to a to-do list? I mean, just tell me why you would, what advantage you would have or what advantages you would see of using something like a Kanban instead of using a to-do list? Um, the, the advantage of Kanban, I think, is that there's a, there's a disciplined flow to it. And I think the simplicity is what I really enjoyed because I did an interview a few years back um, with Daniel Deeb and them, I think it was. And basically they said, how do you like to, they asked me, how do you like to track your work? And I gave, it sounded tongue in cheek, but I was being completely honest, is that I just use a pen and paper. And it wasn't until a few years ago, I just have a little notepad, I got one right here, uh, where I would just make a little square box and I'd write what the thing was. And when it was done, I would put an X in the box. And that's all I did. And I've been doing that that way for decades. And it's worked pretty well for me because it's just simple. You go down the list, you can see the tasks. And I think we've all seen the satisfaction of checking an item off a piece of paper. There's a, there's a, some kind of, between the physical action of doing it and the mental satisfaction that comes from it, that's a, that's a real thing. Um, so I enjoyed that. With Kanban, it's similar, but the flow of work only moves from left to right. You know, you have any number of columns, um, typically three or four, I have four in mine. And you would go from, you know, the staging area, the work to be done, then you'd have some in progress, you'd have work that's done, 
Uh, and then maybe you have another column somewhere in between uh, to indicate work that's maybe holed up somewhere. Um, in my case, I have a column that says work that I am 100% done with, but I'm just waiting to publish it for pacing reasons. You know, why would you publish a new work on Christmas morning? Everyone's going to miss that. Uh, so you may just want to hold it in the queue. So I have a couple different uh, columns there just personally. But what really makes Kanban powerful is that you constrain the work and process uh, to only a few items at a time. So I only let myself work on two things at a time. The only exceptions are like emergencies. Like if, if my bank calls because there's some kind of issue and I'm not getting paid, that's a priority issue. And I'll put it, you know, I'll break my own rule and do three things at once if I have two other big projects. Um, but what I like about Kanban is the the visual display of it. I can see everything clearly. There, I have a couple different colors I use. And as my tasks progress, I can click and drag them from left to right. And there's, again, the physical satisfaction connecting the actual achievement with the physical action of moving work to the to the done, done pile. And for some reason, that works pretty well for me. So I've been using it now for several years. You know, my done column has hundreds of cards in it. Some of them are small things like get your car fixed. And some of them are huge, huge things like develop a new Pluralsight course. And within those cards, sometimes I break them into smaller cards to make the tasks flow easier. You know, so I have a few different approaches there. One thing I haven't done that I think would be particularly interesting is using the APIs that are provided by these different SaaS offerings and automatically creating and moving cards based on work as it's completed. You know, so for example, if I have a card that says publish a new book, when I type get push, I, you know, in addition to publishing the book, it should also potentially make an API call to my Kanban board and move it from in progress to done. Yeah, see, I wouldn't, cool. I wouldn't do that because then I would lose the satisfaction of marking yeah. it off as done. And you I missed like the that's why I ha- that's yeah. actually why I haven't. That's actually the reason <laughs> yeah. I haven't done it. Um, so I've thought about doing it, but I don't want, I, I actually want to log in. I want to see it and I want to smile as I drag it to the done pile forever. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I haven't done that. I used Todoist, which I think is not the same visual type thing, but I put a lot more into Todoist probably than you do in Kanban. It sounds like in Kanban, you're mostly focused on bigger projects or one-off things. Whereas in Todoist, I have 30 or 40 recurring items. Like every six months, the filters in my heating, my air conditioner filters need to be replaced. And so that's in Todoist. So I don't think about it anymore. I just don't have to think about it. It pops up on the today list whenever it comes up and I just get it done and I click it off and it's done. And so I think what's interesting about that is your constraint of two things at once, which I do mentally because a to-do list doesn't give me that ability to constrain the number of things I'm working on at once, which, which I do. I call that macro tasking, by mm-hmm. the way. I focus on one thing and still it's done. This week, I'm recording a new s- series for Pearson, a new live lesson series, I probably won't work on very much for the rest of this week until that's done. And then I have like two or three sets of slides I need to work on. But I won't get my head out of that live lesson series, that that video series until it's done. Um, just the context switch just consumes so much of my time, just context switching. Right. I've done a lot of thinking lately about cognitive load, about what what is it that takes up headspace and and whether or not it's valuable. And And task switching is huge. Um, we like to believe that we multitask, but we don't really do that well. And we really don't do it well when we're in the middle of deep work. And and just to reiterate, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of restating what Nick and Russ have already said, but that idea of controlling the amount of work that you have in process is huge. And that comes from 
manufacturing processes that started to be invented in the 50s by Toyota and books like The Goal and The Toyota Way, where what they found was that one of the greatest inhibitors to efficient production was this glut of work in progress and backlogs of work stuck somewhere in the system. And so the goal is to be efficient and to start a thing and finish a thing and move on um, once you get it done, but not to have so many balls in the air that as you task switch, you lose a lot of your, you know, your ability to get things done. Yeah. Well, it's not just task switching, is it? It's, It's also the mental issue. I'll tell you that when I get too many things going on at once, when I'm in the middle of doing something and I get interrupted 15 times and they're all important, I'm not saying they're not important interruptions. I'm not saying I don't have to go to the meeting or whatever it is, but it causes mental stress. And it's, it turns into this whole thing where what we used to say at Cisco when I was working in the TAC was processor thrashing on process scheduler. And you're spending all your time scheduling and you're not actually getting any work done because you're thinking about what it is you need to do next. And I think what Nick's talking about with automation is a big, big help here because rather than thinking about what it is I need to do, the tool is actually telling me what I've set up six months ago. And I'm actually constraining myself through the tool. It's like going to the department store and they say, I can't do that because the computer won't let me. Well, the computer will let you. Somebody programmed it not to do that. So that's why you can't do it. So you're actually predetermining your own thing by doing this automation stuff um, and predetermining your own schedule in a way that's helpful in many times. Yeah, I think scheduling is another one of those things that computers are good at, people aren't. And if we don't, I, I think even just recognizing that fact is valuable. If you can say to yourself, oh, scheduling, this is not something I should be doing. Like, Let's offload it to something else. Um, there's some efficiencies to be gained there. I, I also use Kanban and I like the, I like being able to visualize work and it helps me to be self-aware. Um, if there's too much, you know, work in progress, then I know that I need to change something about how I'm doing my work. But if it's, the, if it, for me, if that wasn't visual, then I wouldn't yeah. know that there was a problem until other symptoms started to sort of pile up. So what else do you want to automate about your Kanban board, Nick? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, like you said, I, I've been has I haven't done any automation with the Kanban board for the same reason that you suggested. Is you know, there's it, that that one minute of manual work is usually it's it's a satisfying activity. So I don't necessarily want that to go away. Versus everything else I talked about, like the book publishing, the two FA logins, like that's not fun to me. I don't like using. I don't like having to get my phone every time I want to log into a website when I don't have it handy, right? But for the Kanban stuff, it's like I will I will pay that price because it's usually worth it uh, mentally for me. I'm trying to think of what other kind of interesting things. I mean, the one one of the first things I did, this is about four years old, is just automating the uh, deployment of my website. You know, all I do is it, it's just static HTML files and I manage it like a code project. And when I do my Git push, those files get copied to an S3 bucket. It's a serverless architecture. And those files are just hosted as static content. So when I want to add a new whatever, a new PDF, a new packet capture collection, a new Postman collection, a new blog, whatever, I just add those files in. I do a git push. I walk away. I get an email that says the pipeline started. And I get another email when it finishes. What makes that a little different than the audio example and the book example is that the website has extensive testing built in. So for example, I don't, um, and you know, Yvonne is, 
and you know, I've talked to Yvonne a few times about it because once in a while, like her blog will have like an, uh, an out-of-date SSL certificate or something and my testing will catch that. And what I'll do is I'll go and I'll say, well, these websites, you know, they're not, they're, they're not good links anymore. And so what I do is I'll usually comment them out until the next update and I'll let the owner know, basically, I don't want to have dead links or invalid links or security risks public on my website. I, every time you click something, I don't know about you, but I get it. I go into a, an undetectable rage when I go to click on something and it's like 404 not found or this link is moved and now you need to, you need to log in now. It's like, uh, that makes me upset. So I like to scan for that to make sure that I don't do that to people. I try not to be too hypocritical on that front. You know, one thing that bothers me most definitely bothers others. So I do that. I do a lot of testing with it. And I think from a depth, from a, from like a DevOps testing and continuous integration perspective, it's one of my larger projects because you need to check a lot of things. You need to check all the HTML text. You need to make sure all the links are working. And for some of the links, you may even need to do a full get request to check the files. You need to get hash, in my opinion, get hashes of everything on your website so people can check integrity, make those hashes public. Um, these are just good kind of security and manageability hygiene things that I, I built into the site. And even though it's not really a serious app, it's just a bunch of files on a repo that people can see on a browser. That's all it is. There's no real app code behind it. But by treating it like a like, like a application project, I can build in a lot of those checks. And it's very easy, again, when I'm done writing a blog or doing some work, get push, walk away. I go from 100 to zero. I take my break and I come back. And if I want to do more work, I can. And I don't have to worry about going and uploading the files manually, which is what I had to do in the past. I don't have to worry about opening the files and clicking each link with a new browser tab to verify that they all work. That's what I did. I did this for about a week until I realized it was horrible and uh, found a better approach. So that's just another example of, of how I was, you know, how I decided to save myself that extra 10 minutes per deploy and turn it into one command, basically. My takeaway is that a lot of Nick's automation is rage avoidance. <laughs> yeah, rage avoidance. That's a good. That's a good summary. Yeah, that's I mean, exactly what it is. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I use WordPress, so I just let a WordPress hosting company take care of it, uh, yeah. which is again outsourcing. And I've thought about going to static website, but I think there are problems with the scope and scale of my WordPress site at this point that would be difficult for me to replicate in some ways. And so I've thought about it. I thought about switching to another platform. But it just never turns out to work the way I want it to right now. So maybe maybe when I'm done with everything I'm supposed to be working on, I'll actually go back and work on doing a static site. Yeah. When, <laughs> when, when have you ever time. been done with your <laughs> yeah, workload? Yeah, that's the ever. problem. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the problem. So, um, Yvonne, anything else before we wrap up? I, I think we've pretty much covered it. I, I mean, I think the thing that I hoped folks would see from this conversation is that the tools that we talk about every day in our work lives can also help us in our personal lives, whether that's, you know, managing a household or dealing with repairs or like Russ talked about his his regular filter replacement. Um, <laughs> and, and, and that there's no reason we can't take those same tools and implement them in our personal lives and, and make our lives better and easier and, and help us to be more productive and frankly, less ragey. <laughs> frankly, less ragey. So Tom, anything else before? Yeah, I, I uh, had one last question for you, Nick. When, I, when I've automated things um, for work, 
uh, generally what I'll do is I, I will have learned something at the end, like, oh my gosh, I was spending all of this time. I didn't even realize. And then I, I calculate how fast it is. And then I'm like, how much time was I spending on this before? Oh my, oh my gosh, why didn't I do this sooner? And there's, so there's that, but then I've always seemed to learn something interesting. My question for you is like in some of the pr- things that you've talked about, the the automated publishing of your book and other things, was there anything you, you learned a lot of tech, I'm sure, but was there anything you learned about yourself that was, that was um, eye-opening for you? Yeah, I think each one of those projects was, I mean, obviously, like you said, there was a ton of tech learning in it, which is, a, which is a whole nother conversation of itself, because one of the best things you can do is when you're learning something new, actually get a tangible result at the end of that learning. That's like the best outcome you could ask for. And that's happened to me quite a lot. But about myself, um, I think a lot of it is, you know, when you take on a new project and you're not really sure if you can do it, and if it's something you've never done before, like for example, maybe maybe Russ has has done this because just just based on his his experience, Russ, have you ever worked with LaTeX before? Yes, I have. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. A lot of people haven't, and it's a it's a frankly it's a pretty old typesetting language. You know, with things like Microsoft Word and other you know Google Docs, we tend not to see it as much anymore. But it's a relatively difficult language. It was written in like the 70s or the 80s, and it doesn't have a lot of the syntactic flair that things do today. And to take a book that was about 200 pages, transform it into a LaTeX document, which is really like 50 different files if you want to build it smartly, figuring out how to embed images into that in a scalable way, figuring out how to do things like syntax highlighting and monospace for code snippets, you have to figure that out, then figuring out a way to be able to integrate that relatively legacy tool into a modern SaaS-based pipeline like Travis or GitLab or whatever, that was an extremely difficult technological thing. But even aside from the tech, it showed me that I can undertake these, what seemed to be completely impossible challenges, relatively undocumented, untested, kind of uncharted. And it really helped build my confidence to myself, to be quite frank, doing things that not a lot of people have done. Like, Obviously, people have done this before. I'm, I'm not the first person who's automated the production of a LaTeX document. I get that. But today, I don't know anyone else who's done it personally. And I know probably hundreds of engineers at this point. So it makes me, you know, this isn't meant to be boasting about me and my skills. But when I walked away from that project, you know, I still remembered it was right around this time of year, two years ago, early 2019, right after Christmas break, and I finished it. I was like, that was really hard. It was an extremely difficult Christmas break. But I walked away with the satisfaction knowing that I built something that I, 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 again, I micro quit, rage quit, I don't know, 20 times over that week long period. It was so difficult. Um, But finally getting it done, it showed me that with that level of focus and technology aside, um, it was an enormous confidence booster. And I see with a lot of people when they send me DMs or when I talk to them offline, there's usually a question of confidence or you know, what if they don't like what I'm doing or what if I can't solve it? I was like, well, you just keep doing it until you till, until you do solve it or find a problem that matters to you or that you're passionate about and keep attacking it until it's done so you can get the satisfaction of having completed it. Tech aside, I think that's extremely important. And like Russ said, it's, you know, we, we become ethical by practicing being ethical or something like that. Um, you, have to, you have to get the repetitions in in being successful by sticking with your work and seeing it through. And that becomes extremely important regardless of the technology involved. Awesome. I think that's a great place to end. So, Tom, where can people get in touch with you if they want to? I'm on LinkedIn at Tom Ammon and uh, Twitter as well. And I am answering (laughs) Yvonne's uh, challenge. She put up a blog post. So I am now 
I have committed to do Put it. Put it on your Kanban board, man. Hopefully by the next time. <laughs> and Yvonne, yeah. where can people get in touch with you? Now that your blog is active, you can talk about that. Yeah, um, you can always find me on Twitter at Sharp Network. I'm on LinkedIn. And also I have put a couple posts on the blog over the break. So esharp.net, hope to be updating weekly. W-E-E-K-L-Y, not W-E-A-K-L-Y. And hopefully that will be meaningful and helpful to some folks. We'll see. Awesome. And Nick, where can people get in touch with you? Yep, You can find me at my website, njrusmc.net, or on Twitter, Nick Russo, 42518. 42518. There must be a meaning for that number. It's a CCIE number, man. Oh, okay. CCIE number. I never put my CCIE number in anything. Mm -hmm. Maybe I should do that sometime, but anyway, no. Just the CCDE number. <laughs> yeah, no, my CCDE number is 2007-1. CCIE is 2635. And they emailed me this week to tell me that the CCAR is going away. Yeah. For anybody who was interested. It. Yeah, retiring it. So now I'm a CCAR emer emeritus, which is okay because I have my PhD now, so whatever. You got it all, man. <laughs> you got all the trophies. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode of The Hedge. This, I'm Russ White. You can always find me at rule11.tech, and hopefully you'll catch us next time. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.